Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Detour Life. Detour Life is a game changer for both family law professionals and clients alike. Detour Life is an innovative online program which guides clients to easily input and organize the exhaustive document and financial disclosure process and provides professionals with streamlined and secure case management. In addition, Detour Life has comprehensive client onboarding, a secure document repository, income and expense sync, parenting plan agreement features, and much more. I use Detour Life myself, and honestly, one of my favorite features, and one that my clients love as well, is that they can securely link all of their financial accounts directly to the Detour Life platform so that their information is automatically uploaded and updated as time goes on. So whether you're getting a divorce or are a divorce professional, I urge you to check it out yourself. Go to Detour Life, that's D-T-O-U-R dot L-I-F-E, and sign up for their free 14-day trial. Then use code SUSAN20 to get 20% off a subscription. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. We're still using the same programming as our our ancestors. And back then, if you were rejected from the group or you were rejected from your partner, that could mean death. Literally, you could die, right? And so even now we are on Zoom and we live in high-rise apartments, we're still operating with the same machinery of our brain. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I am Susan Guthrie, your host, and today I am really excited because I have a guest who is going to help us delve into the science behind the breakup. She is the chief heart hacker, and her name is Amy Chan. So Amy, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I was just telling you, I I just I'm excited about this topic. It is because everybody thinks heartbreak is right here in your chest. And you're talking about the science behind it. And that's that's a little higher up than our chest. So um, and you I mean, this is your world. This is where you spend your time. You help people get over heart um, heartbreak and breakups. Let me just tell everyone a little bit about you. I always uh, love for my listeners to know uh, a little bit about the background of the people that they're hearing uh, the expert advice from because you guys are really experts. I mean, you are the founder of Renew Breakup Boot Camp, a retreat that takes a scientific and spiritual approach to healing the heart. You're also editor-in-chief of the Heart Hackers Club. There's that Heart Hackers again, an online magazine that focuses on the psychology behind love, lust, and desire. Um, And I have a couple questions about that for you as well. The Observer calls you a relationship expert whose work is like that of a scientific Carrie Bradshaw, and your company's been featured across 
national media outlets, including Good Morning America, Vogue, Glamour, Nightline, and on the front page of the New York Times, which said, a getaway for those who can't get over it. I love that that phrase. Um, And really importantly, everyone, your first book is coming out in just, actually, by the time this episode airs, it will have just been released, December 1, 2020. It's called Breakup Boot Camp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart, and it's coming out from HarperCollins. So we're very excited to have you, Amy. Thank you so much. Thanks for the generous intro. Well, I, it's it's exciting, and you have done an awful lot for someone who, for those of you who are looking at the video, you you look very young to have been through enough heartbreak and uh, you know relationship drama to have made this your uh, your life's work. But um, I'm really excited to have you here because. You know, as a divorce attorney, I talk about heartbreak a lot. Um, And unfortunately, in my world, the heartbreak doesn't have a lot to do with what I'm brought in to deal with, right? I'm brought in to deal with the practical side of things, the how are we going to divide up the assets? How are we going to, you know, pay the debts? How are we going to co-parent our children? But the heartbreak, the emotional content of the divorce is is really what is going what's happening there. That the rest is finances, the rest is a calendar. But uh, heartbreak is it, it truly is that. I mean, I've been there. We've all been there. I bet everybody who's out there listening, we've all been there. So, so what is? I mean, it honestly feels like your heart broke. Is there science behind that? Totally. Um, so. I love diving into the science and psychology behind heartbreaks because when you're going through something so traumatic, it's so easy to think that you're going crazy or that there's something wrong with you. And when you understand that you are a mammal who has pretty much sensed a loss of connection, and this is really activating your nervous system, you are in flight or fight or you're frozen And the reason this is because we're still using the same programming as our our ancestors. And back then, if you were rejected from the group or you were rejected from your partner, that could mean death. Literally, you could die, right? And so even now we are on Zoom and we live in high-rise apartments, we're still operating with the same machinery of our brains. And so after a separation, Even on a cognitive level, if you know, okay, this is over, right? Maybe the divorce papers have been filed or the the breakup talk has happened. Cognitively, you know it, but your body is in a complete state of shock. It's like, what the hell is going on? And the reason this is, is because you have neural pathways that have been wired together through time with this person. And after the separation, those neural pathways need some time. And so if you, after a breakup, don't know what's happening and you keep contacting your ex or you check out their social media or you reread the old text messages and look at, look at the photos, what you're doing is you're just continuously strengthening those old neural pathways and you're not letting new neural pathways come about and strengthening those. And so when you understand a little bit about what's happening on a biological level, it makes you understand like, oh, this is why I shouldn't reach out to my ex. And you also understand that you were in a relationship where you were getting a lot of your needs met. And along with that, a lot of chemicals, meaning dopamine, oxytocin, vasopressin, all those feel-good chemicals, right? 
after a breakup, when you don't have that person, your brain and your body is still craving it. So you have to think of your ex almost like they're a drug dealer, right? Even if you don't even like the person anymore, you're still craving them for soothing for those feel-good chemicals. And so you need to actually find ways and be strategic to set yourself up for success. And I know we'll go through some of these tools um, so that you don't just keep reaching back out. Well, and that's a, a such a great point because it's almost like you're going through withdrawal when you feel it, right? That's that sort of painful feeling. So when you call your ex the drug dealer, I, I think that's, you know, they're the ones who have the stuff, right? They've got what you want. And so that what that made me think of is that makes so much sense because I even see, you know, you have situations usually in a divorce or a breakup where one of the parties instituted it, right? It's one person saying to the other, I want to break up. Not as often do you see that mutual, you know, sit down, be adults and decide it's not working out. But even the person who asks for the divorce or even or is the one to break up, they often still have all that emotional content. They are still. So what it strikes me is they still have that craving for the oxytocin and all those other good things that you were just talking about. Yeah. I mean, it might be less of an ego blow if you're the one who initiated it. But yeah, on a biological level, you're still going through the same withdrawal. Yeah. So you're, so no, it makes perfect sense. And that's why we get that. I'm assuming we get that feeling of, I'm going to, what you just said, um, I'm going to look at their social media and go through there or looking at all the old pictures uh, over and over again of the good old days, even if it's been eons since there were good old days. Do, do we also, because that's something that I hear, do we also tend to romanticize the past and that relationship? A lot of people do, right? We have selective memory. And something to consider is our memories are not facts. Every time we recall a memory, we change it. And so it really just depends. If you are the person who is retelling that story over and over again, I know I did this after my breakup, there was infidelity. And I told anyone who would listen about the betrayal and what a villain he was. And so when I was doing that, all I could see was the dark. I had tunnel vision for everything bad. And that actually didn't serve me because I was in a constant state of bitterness, anger, and resentment. For some people, when they miss their ex so much, they glorify them. They put them on a pedestal. Suddenly, they forget all of the bad times, and they only remember the peak moments, that romantic vacation in Tulum, the flowers, whatever it is, and they have selective memory, and then they're creating a storyline and just finding facts or their version of facts and filling in to, you know, confirm this belief that they have about their last partner. Yeah, that makes so much sense when you're saying these things, but I I don't think I've ever thought them or had anyone explain them quite so clearly or, or with, you know, such precision as you are, you know, and you just talked about betrayal and a little bit of um, sort of alluding to what I'm going to call the victim role. You said there had been infidelity in a relationship and a breakup. And I see quite a bit of that, though, you know, unfortunately in divorce, when as a marriage is breaking down, often someone will stray. And I find people very often getting caught up in that role of being the victim. Um, is, there, is there science behind that? Because that's pretty common. 
Yeah, I, I think that there's a few things at play. Sometimes we hold on to the pain because that is the last part of the relationship we have left. And I know for me, when I just kept repeating the stories over and over again for like two years, even though I was still dating other people and I've supposedly moved on, I was still in a relationship with my ex because I was con- constantly psychoanalyzing the person, vilifying them, talking about them. And so it doesn't matter if there's a divorce paper, if you're still focusing your energy on that person, you're still in a relationship with that person. Um, so yeah, I think that's one part of it. Um, did I answer the question? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Well, just that being caught in the victim role, somebody, um, I had Dr. Debbie Silber on the show several months ago. Um, and she's all about, you know, her, her, uh, post-betrayal syndrome is something that she, she works on people with. And, you know, she mentioned that she thought there was also something in the, when you are the victim, you get all that positive reinforcement from everyone else in the world, right? You get the, oh, you poor thing. He or she did you wrong, done dirty. Um, and is there, I'm, I'm thinking there may be science or maybe not oxytocin, but some sort of you know response to being not pampered. I, I'm not consoled, maybe. So there's there's psychology behind this. So um, there is how humans connect. And a lot of the times humans connect on pain, right? Trauma bonding. It's a thing, right? It's oh, why yeah. the, 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 you know, I know a lot of people who they get together with their girlfriends and they just bash the ex or the person they're dating. And then they start to say they're a sociopath, they're a narcissist. Suddenly they become psychologists that can actually name their mental disorders, right? And so it feels good in the moment. You are getting that hit. You're getting the rush of endorphins or dopamine, whatever it is, but it's like eating a tub of ice cream. It feels great in the moment and afterwards, not so much. So again, it's prolonging that pain and you made a great point. Um, Sometimes we get addicted to our emotions. And so something to understand, which is such a, it's so crazy, is we can get addicted to emotions that are actually very unhealthy. So if you grew up in a household and you constantly felt shame, um, you can get so addicted to the feeling of shame because if you're familiar with it, human beings are drawn to what's familiar and you have developed a subconscious belief on a story about you and shame. When you grow older, you might forget about what happened in the past or why you kind of have this approach on, on thinking about shame, but you will actually create scenarios that will allow you to feel that feeling that has been so familiar with you. If you think about even just friends, if you think about anyone who's super dramatic, it just seems like drama just follows them everywhere. They might be addicted to drama. They might've grown up in a household where there was a lot of chaos, where drama actually gave them attention when they had fits, when they had tantrums, and they associated, oh, this behavior will get me some attention. It doesn't matter if it's healthy attention, bad attention, good attention, it's just something. And so that might explain why some people can get so attached to this, I'm a victim, I'm sad, please help me, because that is a way that they can get some sort of support and attention. That is, 
that makes so much sense. It's a little scary, actual, actually, because then, you know, if you're constantly being reinforced, because I do think it's other, you know, anyone you go to, you go to a family member, you go to a friend, they are going to tell you the things that you want to hear. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, you've been done wrong. And if you are addicted to it and you can continue to get those hits is that you just have to wear them out till they finally get to the point of, Oh, would you just get over it? Or, or is there some way that we can wean ourselves off of that? I think that if you go the approach of just letting it wear off, you're either going to be hit with reality because your support group can only take so much and they will start to avoid you. Or if you have something loving enough, who will tell you the hard truth of like, okay, enough is enough. There is a healthy way of dealing with the emotions that come through separation and divorce and breakup. And then there's dysfunctional ways, right? Sadness is healthy. You feel it, you cry, you might journal about it. You might have a few people you talk to, and then you force yourself to go for a jog or like, you know, switch it up. Dysfunctional ways of approach of, of sadness is depression. When you wallow in it, when you just keep listening to cold place, fix you and watch you know, um, love romantic movies and then cry that that's not happening. That's feeding the emotion. It's turning that emotion to a big emotional monster. And so, yes, there's definitely tools where you don't need to prolong your suffering. And one of these tools is learning how to reframe. And this is a tool, not only that's going to help you in your relationships, but in life. And that is learning the process of how to actually separate the facts from the fiction. Because what happens is, especially when we're in something as traumatic as a relationship's end, we are privy to what's called cognitive distortions. These are our thinking traps, and we all do it, right? There's different types of thinking traps. There's all or nothing thinking when you're like, I always do this. This never happens to me. There is the generalization. Maybe you were cheated on, and then suddenly you think everyone is untrustworthy. Um, there's there's actually like a list of 13 common ones that happen after a separation. So look at your story and identify what are your interpretations and your assumptions and what's actual facts, because the facts are going to be neutral. But when you start applying those assumptions and like, I gave the best years of my life, how dare they? That is not a fact. Those are interpretations and assumptions and that changes your story. It changes your narrative and you want to create a narrative that serves you now and for your future. I'd like to take a moment now to tell you about my favorite co-parenting app, FAIR. There are other apps out there, but FAIR is the only one that I recommend to my clients. We know that divorce is never easy, and when children are in the picture, it can be really tricky, especially when you're trying to communicate with your ex, and that's a challenge. Now there's an app with you and your kids in mind. It's called FAIR, F-A-Y-R. FAIR is the easiest, most intuitive, and conflict-diffusing co-parenting app on the market. It helps to eliminate misunderstandings while also improving communication between co-parents. Here's what the FAIR app can do. It has a time-sharing calendar, documentable text messaging, an expense tracker, a GPS check-in, and by the way, no one else has that, a monthly parenting report, a private journal, a file vault, and importantly, you can export all of the records into a convenient and time and date stamped PDF when you need it for your attorney or for court, and there's a Spanish version of the app as well. So subscribe at befair.com, that's B-E-F-A-I-R. 
F-A-Y-R.com and then download FAIR from the App Store or Google Play. You can go to FAIR.com for more details and use the discount code SUSANG18 to receive 20% off. Stay tuned for more from Susan and her guest, Chief Heart Hacker, Amy Chan, with the advice you need to heal that broken heart. I think the second thing that's really important is building your muscle for self-compassion because you can't get to a place of forgiveness for someone else if you can't get to a place of compassion for yourself. If you are enjoying this episode, check out Tales from the Front, Marriage and Divorce in the Military with Christina Kaiser. The changes we see in um, the general population in terms of gender roles or supporting a person's career or even having your own, um, have they're slower, I think, to disperse in the military, but, but they're coming along. But they're probably a, a little bit behind the general population for, for a lot of various reasons. And now we return to today's show. It's funny, I was just doing a training for mediation. I train other mediators how to how to mediate. And we had a guest speaker come in talking about the difference between fact and the story we tell ourselves. You know, and facts are things that can be touched or or can be filmed or can be written. You know, that he had a, a wonderful, actually, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll go pull it out of the um out of the notes from the the training. But, you know, you just were talking about sort of doing that yourself. And the one thing that I'm thinking is that has to be an incredibly hard thing for the person who's in the middle of a trauma of a breakup. I mean, I'm trying to remember. It's been, I've been with my husband for a really long time, but I remember break, I did not take breakups particularly well in my life when, when I had them in college or, or before. And, you know, so how do you, do you sit down and write this down? How, how, what's the best approach? Yeah, so I go over it in my book. This whole exercise is there. Um, but, I'll, you know, for all of your listeners, you can do it. And so what you would do is first write down your story. Get a piece of paper or in your journal, write down your story unedited. Write it down in 10, 10 points of what happened. And as if you're telling a friend for the first time everything. And then after that, take a look at your look at the different types of cognitive distortions. You can find this online. Just look at cognitive distortions or, or read the book. And then go back to your story and circle all of the cognitive distortions, right? So if uh, another a common cognitive distortion is getting stuck in shoulds. I should have done that. He should have done that. She should have seen this, right? So that's one thinking trap. Go back and be like, oh, I'm doing it here, here, here. And you will likely find there's going to be a few thinking traps that stand out that you have a tendency to do. And I'll bet that it's not only in your romantic relationship, it's probably in other parts of your life as well. After that, you then want to write your story again, this time only with five points. This time you only stick to the facts. So all of the thinking traps, all of the interpretations and assumptions, you remove those and write down your story in five points. And then reread that story and you will, I'm pretty confident you will notice that the emotional charge and the emotional intensity of the new story that's just based on facts is a lot less than the story that you started off with. 
I think that's a very first step of what you could do. So you can start to identify when your mind is actually tricking you and causing you more suffering than is needed. And then I think the second thing that's really important is building your muscle for self-compassion because you can't get to a place of forgiveness for someone else if you can't get to a place of compassion for yourself. Once you have compassion for yourself, and this is a muscle you build, you build it through time. There's different exercises from guided meditations. Kristen Neff is a great thought leader on this. The more compassion you will be able to have for another, and that will actually fast forward your journey on getting to a place of acceptance and letting go and forgiveness of the person who hurt you. So how does it how does it tie into the compassion for yourself? That's I find that really interesting. When we a lot of the times we're very judgmental of our emotional experience. Uh, when we have a feeling of sadness, when we're crying, we label it as good or bad, right? The things that are uncomfortable, bad. I don't want that. Just get over it. And the thing is. Our emotions, the good, the bad, the ugly, they're all just part of the human experience. You're just expanding your emotional range. Like I mentioned earlier, there's a functional way of handling your emotions and there's dysfunctional. And as long as you're in the functional and you're not going into, again, feeding the emotional monster, it is okay for you to go through that. It's part of the stage and part of the process of moving forward from someone. I mean, we are so hard on ourselves when we go through a heartbreak, but when we break our leg, it's very common knowledge. You go to the doctor, you put on a cast, you allow time for it to heal. Immediately after taking off the cast, you're not gonna run a marathon. You might walk on it a little, you're gentle with yourself. But when it comes to matters of the heart, it's like, buck up, you know, you stay strong. Like, you'll get over it, get over it. Like, what? No. Give yourself a little time. Well, and it's not just us, as as we were talking about earlier. We can wear out our support tribe very quickly if we are, you know, in that just wallowing phase where we're not moving forward from it. But I do, I would imagine, you know, the the exercises you were just talking about doing, which I I makes so much sense based on especially on what you're saying. But is there a period of time? So your boyfriend just came over and just broke up with you, has just walked down the stairs from your apartment and you hear the door close and you realize, you know, he walked in, you were in a relationship, he walked out, you're no longer in a relationship. Is there a time period of just like letting that sink in? Does it, does it happen over a certain amount of time for people? Yeah, Susan, you make an excellent point. There is a time period especially when you're fresh out of the throes of a heartbreak, where you just let yourself be. You just let yourself feel the feels. This is part of the process. The problem is when we avoid and distract and try to just make it go away. And then you're skipping a critical part of the entire process of grieving, right? The the stages of separation is very similar to the stages of grief, right? It starts off at shock, then denial, then sadness, then anger, then relapse potentially where you're also again in a state of denial, and then you get into acceptance and you hop around the different stages. It's not one linear path. And so if you just kind of go straight to the cognitive, right? And I often work with overachievers, so they go straight to the the 
the analyzing, the psychoanalysis of it, and they're not allowing themselves to feel, what do you think happens? That pain just gets stored into the body and you have compound trauma and then it comes out some other way or in some other relationship in the future. And so I think there's a healthy way of also processing those emotions, which is the immediate tendencies after a separation or hearing that news is you're going to want to isolate. You're not going to want to eat. Um, and there's science behind this. Basically, what's happening is your body's in a state of survival. And so eating and your appetite becomes like fifth on the priority list because it's just in a state of shock of surviving. And so you need to actually fight your body's tendencies, that what they it naturally wants to do, which is isolate, not see anyone, and, and not eat, and like not move around, right? And so... I would make sure that every day you're getting your sense, your, your dose of endorphins, move your body. It's absolutely crucial because you're depleted of all these um, chemicals that were from your relationship. So you need to get it in another way. And so I would also, if you find yourself just completely not able to get out of bed, just crying for days, I would set a timer do timed intervals of grieving. This might mean you put your timer on for 30 minutes. In that 30 minutes, do whatever the hell you want. Scream at your pillow, do the ugly cry, whatever it is. After that 30 minutes, have a plan in action where you're actually going to do a state change. This might mean you meet a friend for a jog. This might mean you set up a call with your sister in advance so that she knows that you're going to be calling and you just say, hey, please hold space for me. Do something to get you out of that because if you don't, make a really concerted effort and create a, the intention of getting yourself out, you're just going to wallow and go into this black hole of a spiral. I, I, I'm seeing myself like picking up my phone and going, okay, I got 30 minutes to let this out. <laughs> and then just, yeah, I was just going to say, I don't, I mean, I'd be like, I got to make this work. Uh, but that's, but think about that, you know, and that goes back to the compassion. How about giving yourself, you just gave yourself 30 minutes to just feel however you feel and let that out. We don't do that very often in our lives, in our daily lives. You know, how often is something going on, you know, right now, all the stress and everything that we all have going on in our lives, but, you know, you, you step into work, you step into something that you're doing and it's, you've got to put it all behind you and put it down. Um, so I love, I, I might just build in 30 minutes a day just to let my feelings out no matter what. Um, but you mentioned another before, um, I, I want to touch on this because you mentioned the, the stages of grief and anger. And that is, that I'm very familiar with. So as a divorce attorney, as someone who's working with divorcing couples, I literally just before you and I got on, um, on this call to, to tape this episode, had just done a mediation with one of my old mediate, uh, I had handled their divorce, mediated their divorce, divorce for them several years ago. They're now a few years out and they had an issue come up and I helped them out with it. But the ex-husband in this particular case is still in a place of such incredible anger that that there's it's just I mean it can't, it comes right through the screen right I do all my mediations online and you know is there what is the psych what is the the science behind that anger and is there a way for both you to deal with it if you're the one feeling the anger but what about the other person dealing with the anger too great question yeah so so in the stages of separation, anger is actually a positive sign in the stages because it shows energy is moving. 
Now, when you're stuck in the anger stage and you can't get out of it, this is really, you're, you're not moving forward. You're not going to a place of acceptance. And again, sometimes anger, hanging on to that anger or that pain is kind of the last part of the relationship we have left. And we're not even aware that's how we're hanging on to the relationship and it's stopping us from letting go. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of this, it sounds so simple, but by actually creating self-compassion, you will automatically start to have more compassion for the other person. Like the stronger you build that muscle, like without a doubt, if you do 30 days of self-compassionate exercises, without a doubt in 30 days, you will feel less of that angry charge towards the other person because it just shifts things for you. And it also, I think, starts to shift your nervous system, right? And another thing that we do at Breakup Bootcamp is whether people are stuck in the sadness or the depression, I work with a lot of women. And so they automatically go into sadness because it's more socially accepted uh, versus anger. So it's actually hard for them to get into an angry state because they're like, oh, it's not okay. Um, I would, you know, doing 28 days of gratitude journaling, I know it sounds like, oh, like that's an Instagram post. There's research that shows that it starts to change your brain. It starts to shift your brain. So you start seeing things for the positive. And so when you are stuck in this loop, that's what's happening. When this person you're talking about, thought he's an evil person, he is stuck in a loop over and over and over again. And he needs to interrupt that loop. So do whatever the hell you possibly can. Try the gratitude journaling, try this, the self-compassion meditations. One of those things is going to stick. You just have to figure it out and do it for like 30 days straight. So you give a chance for your neural pathways to start to change. Yeah. And I I can speak to the gratitude journaling. That was my 2020 uh, beginning of the year um, exercise. I was going to every night write down five things, no matter how large or small, that I was grateful for in that day. And I swear within a week... My, enti- my entire day changed, not just the five minutes of coming up with the five things, because then you start to see everything through the lens of gratitude. And moments in your day will be like, oh, that is a moment of gratitude. You know, it just, I can't explain it. I love how you're saying it, it creates new neural pathways because it literally did change my life. And I highly recommend that whether you're angry or whatever's happening in your life, that was something that changed it. So I, you know, I know that you have in the book a lot, you've mentioned exercises and you have a few signature exercises, which you are very kindly going to be sharing with um, my listeners. So, but they're, they're visual. So what we've decided to do is we're going to continue the interview view and it will be on the ex- two exercises that we're going to do will be on the video channel. So if you are listening to the podcast now, I'm going to get some information from Amy. You can find out where how to get in touch with her, find out about the breakup boot camp and how to get the book. And then we're going to go and continue the interview and do the exercises. You can go watch it on the YouTube channel. So let's br- take a break now. Tell everyone how to find you, um, how to get the book, and how to sign up for your Renew Breakup Bootcamp. Yeah. So you can find me, renewbreakupbootcamp.com. I'm on Instagram, Miss Amy Chan. If you have any questions, DM me. I'll totally answer them. And my book, um, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart, it's available at all bookstores. Try to buy it at bookshop.org so it supports indie bookstores. 
Oh, I love that. I will put that link in the um, show notes so that everybody can find it. But so thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. And everybody, come on over to the YouTube channel and we'll see you over there. Yay! you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.